John chapter 9. So, you've heard of the Maccabees? Well, this morning we're going to meet one of the used to be's. <laughs> Seems like every single time Jesus did a healing, everywhere Jesus went, he left used to be's in his wake. People who used to be blind, used to be deaf, used to be dumb, used to be beggars, used to be prisoners, used to be lost. I love that about Jesus because I think that's probably your story. I know it's mine. Having been a, a one-time, I won't even say what I was, but I used to be. I used to be. John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Note that, blind from birth, congenital blindness. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Because you got to blame someone. Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam which translated, John wants to make sure we know, it's translated sent. And he went away and washed and came back seeing. Oh, Lord, again, just bless this, these words, your words, Lord. I pray that your word, which comes forth from your mouth this morning, does not come back to you empty, that we will hear you and draw near to you and know you through your word and by the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Used to be blind. Well, we're gonna come back to this story. And what's weird about it, I just told this story a week and a half ago. We just studied this verse. I'll tell you why in a little bit here. A lot of things I'm gonna tell you why in a little bit. But before we come back to the used to be blind man, I wanna give you a little prophecy update. Is that okay, Bill? We do a little prophecy update? Okay, so just a little mini Prophecy update, I'm not doing the whole morning. I wanna get back to John 9, but I want you to think about something that, that really struck me in Israel as we were going through the land and processing what's happening in our world right now. You all have been reading the news, you're very aware that as of this week, over four million Ukrainians have fled their country. Four million, it's, it's hard to comprehend. Another 6.5 million have been uprooted from their homes within Ukraine. So we're talking over 10 million people whose lives are completely and unutterably altered, changed. And not right now for the better. Life is complete catastrophe. 200,000 of these 10 million or so people are Jews. Ukraine used to be... <laughs> used to be home to a huge Jewish population. I didn't realize this. Prior to the Holocaust, there were well over a million. In fact, through the Holocaust, 1.5 million Ukrainian Jews were massacred. And so the fact that there's any population of Ukrainian Jews today is, is quite stunning. From 1991 to 2019, 300,000 Ukrainian Jews, survivors of the Holocaust and their offspring, they made their way, they made Aliyah 
To make aliyah is to go up to Israel. It's to move back into the land. And so over 300,000 across 30 years made aliyah. That's a whopping 833 a day if you just divide it out. Leaving Ukraine and going back to tiny Israel for the homeland. And, and it's interesting that beyond that, now, in the past two weeks, it's more than interesting, it's tragic. In the last two weeks of Russian aggression, already 2,000 have immigrated to the land, which would add up to about 1,000 a week. Amazing. The Israelis are preparing right now to receive up to 100,000 Jews seeking refuge. Now you hear the numbers and go, okay, I mean, I feel bad for that Jewish population, but when you tell me upwards of 10 million have had their homes destroyed or completely displaced in and outside of the Ukraine, 200,000 Jews, I feel bad for them, but, but what are they in light of all these other? Why focus on the Jews? Because the Bible does. I want you to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 16 for a minute. Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14. I'll give you a moment to find that. We in these last days are always looking for the signs of the times because these are the times of the signs. And so much continues to go on in our world. And if your eyes are open, you're aware of these things, indicators, not only the birth pangs that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, which are growing more frequent and more intense, but also other indicators throughout Scripture. And one of the biggest indicators of the return of Jesus and of the end of the last days is the Jewish people. The fact that Israel is even a nation again since 1948 is a huge prophetic marker for the times in which we live, but we're always watching and trying to pay attention. Listen to this. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. And this cannot be talking about Babylon. Now listen, Jeremiah is prophesying at the time of the fall of Judah, the fall of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, 586 BC. Jeremiah watched the temple burn. He was in Jerusalem to experience all these things. He saw his own people carted off to Babylonian captivity in the east. In the east. Let me repeat that, in the east. And God brought his people back in small amounts. Many of them just stayed in the east, but small amounts of the Jewish people came back to the land, resettled the land, rebuilt the temple, a paltry little temple, but they had one, and began to grow again in the land, but that was from the east. This prophecy through Jeremiah cannot be about their return from Babylon. It can't be. Because he says, I'm going to bring them up from the land of the north. If you look at a map today, directly north of Israel is Turkey. Then you cross the Black Sea and you come to Ukraine. Ukraine is straight north of Israel. 
And God says, I'm gonna bring my people back from the north. And so as of right now, for the last 30 years, 300,000 have come back from the north. And even more recently with what's happening with the Russian aggression is the Jewish people are coming back even more so to the land. Two different ways, really. Over the last 30 years, they just came because they had that call home. And we're seeing that all over the world. Jews everywhere sensing a call to go back home. Don't you do it, Hank. <laughs> this, this sense that we've got to go, that the only safe place, the only sanctuary in the world is going to be in the land of Israel. And so Jews from everywhere are coming back and they're being drawn back. And by the way, God's doing an amazing thing in the land because under the radar, Jews are coming to Christ right and left. They're discovering Mashiach. They are realizing the truth about who Jesus really is. But I watch this and listen to verse 16. God says, behold, I'm gonna send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. Listen, as the Jews are coming back and as they have been coming back for 30 years, the fishermen are waiting. The fishermen are there. Groups like Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministries, and others who, as the Jews are coming home, are planted Jews themselves within the state of Israel, and they're offering Jesus. Bridges for Peace, relief organizations that are, that are bringing those who make Aliyah, they're bringing them food, they're offering them shelter, they're helping them get settled, and they are teaching them about Jesus, it's a two-pronged approach to meet the physical need and then meet the spiritual need. You know, it's really sad to me. I was sitting in the hotel reading the Jerusalem Post because it was there, and as I read through it, I came across an article denouncing Chosen People Ministries and Jews for Jesus, written by a rabbi saying that they are preying on vulnerable Jews fleeing from the war. They're preying on them with the gospel. They're just offering them food to make them proselytes. You know what Jesus said about that? John chapter six, verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So I say more power to them. Give out food, give out aid, give out shelter and help as the Jewish people are returning. But for all, by all means, for God's sake, give them the gospel. Because that's food to eternal life. This is something the natural man does not understand, doesn't get. Ah, you're just trying to make them proselytes. Listen, none of us are trying to make Christians like us. You don't wanna be a Christian like me. You wanna be a follower of Jesus. We desire for the reality of eternal life to be for every person. So whatever it takes, yes, if it means I'm gonna take you out to lunch and then spring the gospel on you, so be it. Because it's food for eternal life. And yet the rabbi is saying, oh, it's, it's a horrible thing that they're doing. Listen, the fishermen, God says, I'm gonna send fishermen first and they will fish for them. And the fishermen have gone first. They've been going for the last several decades fishing for, trying to bring in a great catch of salvation by the gospel of Christ. But listen, the hunters are right on their heels. 
and the hunters are coming and the hunters will do one of two things. And if you're a hunter, I'm not talking literally about you. So please don't come up there here and tell me what kind of gun you use and how, how many you know, deer you've killed this year. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. <laughs> but the hunters will either drive out the prey or will kill the prey. What's happening in Ukraine in the land of the north? The Jewish people are once again being driven out. It's as if God says, if you're not gonna come back to my, my land willingly to be caught for eternity, I'm gonna drive you back to the land so that I can bring you to eternity. That's still the end game for the Lord. And this is what we see happening. And I believe a fulfillment in part of Jeremiah 16 as the Jewish people are coming now back from the land of the north and more will come. Bible prophecy. Verse 17, by the way, says, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Verse 18, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. And then Jeremiah responds, verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Why is that so important, Lord? Because there's no other way to be saved. Amen. You got to know that I'm the Lord. And God is serious about salvation. He is serious about yours and mine and everyone that we know. He's going to do what it takes. He's going to bring us to the end of ourselves if that's what it takes. He's going to send fishermen to try and bring in a catch. But if that doesn't work, he's going to send hunters. And the question is, how do we respond? What will we do with this? God sees it all. That's the thing. He, he misses nothing. He says, my eyes are on them. His eyes are still on his chosen people, Israel, as much as his eyes are on you, on me, and on this lost world to bring a great salvation, to make everybody who just would receive it a used-to-be, a used-to-be. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees us. The question is, do we see Jesus? Which brings us to our study this morning. And I began with, with, with prophecy first because the sixth sign in John chapter 9, the sixth sign in the gospel of John out of seven is all about seeing Jesus. Don't forget that as we study it this morning. This is the point of the sign. How is God going to fully restore Israel with Sabbath rest to their promised land? Through Messiah, through Jesus. But not the Jesus most modern Jews are looking for. That's something else I'll explain in a bit. Because the modern Jewish translation or, or version or definition of Messiah, it falls woefully short of who Messiah truly is. You know what else falls short? Time. Time is growing short. I'm reading prophecies like Jeremiah 16 and going, 
He's gonna bring him back from the land of the north and that is exactly what is taking place before our eyes. They are coming back from the Ukraine, from Turkey. They're heading back south. They're coming from Russia above that, back to the land of Israel, and they are coming in droves, as the Lord said would happen at the end of days. And so our time is growing short, and Jew and Gentile alike have a choice, and that is to see Jesus and to be saved by him. Watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So I'm going to give you five things to jot down. We'll outline this chapter. And the first one is the condition. The condition. The condition is congenital blindness. He saw a man blind from birth. Eyes that were not only dead eyes. These were eyes that had never lived. These are eyes that have never seen. This is lifeless flesh in this man's head. And by the way, that's every one of us. What do you mean? Blind from birth. We are born spiritually blind. Behold, Psalm 51, 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that doesn't mean that you're, by the way, born with original sin. That doesn't mean that the sin of Adam is on you and you're stuck with it. No, it means we're born little sinners. It means each and every one of us are born with a sin nature and all we need is a few seconds, a few minutes, a few hours to prove it. That we're selfish and self-centered and we are sinful and we have to learn righteousness and learn goodness. We started with spiritual congenital blindness. That is blind in our flesh, lifeless flesh. And Jesus saw this man. Note that he saw him. I love that. He saw the man who couldn't see. Ah, you're making too much out of that, Rick. No, I'm not, because the word saw, there are three words for saw or to see in the Greek. Three words. The first word is blepo. It's not a Marx brother, it's it's a word. Blepo marks. He was the one who kept running into walls. No, blepo means, blepo means to see, but it's a very common and casual seeing. It's like I, I, I just saw Bill, you know, blepo. No, not your blepo, but I saw with the, the word blepo. Okay, I just, I just glanced over at Bill, common, that's seeing. There's also the word, the second word is thereo. Thereo, which sounds like theory. It's where we get our word theory. So thereo is to see, it's to carefully study. Blepo, I just see someone. Thereo, I see you. Steve, I'm studying those glasses. I'm trying to think, are they the same as mine? I'm not, that's thereo, okay? Blepo, just to see. Thereo, to carefully study. But the word that is used here, when Jesus looks over and it says that he saw a man blind from birth, and John is always intentional with his words, the word is oida, which is where we get idea. In other words, it's to comprehend or to perceive. Jesus perceived the blind man. Jesus saw him with a sense of what he was experiencing. Jesus saw him and comprehended his condition. Verse two. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? How often do we take a person's miserable condition and turn it into a conversation? That's second, the conversation. The conversation, we'll see someone hurting and it becomes for us a theological discussion. Who is the sinner here? I mean, the guy's blind, so obviously somebody sinned. And they're asking a theological question because there was a train of Jewish thought that said it's possible for an infant to actually sin in the mother's womb. I'm not sure exactly how that would work. You know, the baby in the womb, I don't know, maybe the wrong kind of food comes down and, and, and he cusses, I don't know. <laughs> but they, there was actually belief in, in Jewish thought first century that, yeah, that, that an infant in the womb can sin and therefore be born a, a sinner, Does, not recognizing the sin nature, but saying there's an actual sin that took place. So they're asking the question, they're trying to understand theology. Did he sin? to be born blind or did his parents sin and pass it along from the previous generation, which by the way is also biblically incorrect. You do not carry the sins of your father or mother. You don't bear that. Ezekiel tells us everyone will basically pay for their own unless Jesus does. Everybody's responsible, the father for the sins of the father and the son for the sins of the son, but they're trying to figure this out. Who sinned? What's going on? Listen, a person's life is never theology to Jesus. It's always personal. For Jesus, it's never about a textbook conversation or a philosophical debate. No, he sees you. He perceives me. He understands and comprehends where we're at. Verse three. Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Hang on, wait a minute, hold it. How is that not theology? And so that the works of God, are you serious? That God would make this guy be born blind and live a lifetime in darkness just so he could be glorified? It's a little arrogant even to question God on this one, but we're going to just for a minute. Stay with me. Jesus didn't say that God caused him to be born blind so that God could be glorified. What did he say? Listen to it again. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that God's works would be displayed in him. Yeah, but I'm still struggling with this. He was born blind and then lived in blindness all these years. He's, got, he's an adult now, he's of age. And God did this so that his works could be displayed, so his works could be seen. Listen to me. Anytime the works of God are displayed in a person, the result is eternal life. Amen. That's what God is working toward, what God is working at. Get this, verse four. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. All right, what are the works of him who sent Jesus? Anybody remember? It's to believe in him. John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you might believe in him whom he has sent. That's the point. That's the work that Jesus is talking about here. That this man would be saved. That's why he was born blind. Had he not been born blind, maybe he would have wandered off in spiritual blindness all his life and never been saved. 
But for Jesus, for God, it's whatever it takes to get you home, whatever it takes to get you headed to heaven. The work of God in Jesus in this sign is not about flash or spectacle or self-glorification even, and it's not about proving the power of Jesus in the moment. It's about a man's salvation to the glory of God. By the way, Jesus invites us into that work. Notice that in verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me. Well, who's the we? Normally, I'd say, well, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, he says, we must work the works of him. And what I believe Jesus is doing is inviting you and me into this work. We gotta do this. As long as it's day. In the light of day, we must work these works. As long as it is day, what does that mean? That's right now. Right now is as long as it is day. It's daylight. It's called the church age. It's the age of his salvation. It's the age of grace. These are the days where everything is free and open to be saved. All you've got to do is believe in him, whom he has sent. And salvation is available in these days. Night is coming, Jesus says. Night is coming when no one can work because fishermen do their fishing in the daylight. The hunters are gonna hunt at night. Verse five, number three, number three, the cleansing, the cleansing. Watch this, verse five. While I'm in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So he's repeating John 8, 12. If you look back one chapter, Jesus spoke again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. He's now said it twice and, and probably very close together. In fact, what's happening in chapter nine, there's really no break between chapter eight and chapter nine. This is probably still all the same day in Jerusalem, just after Sukkot. And Jesus says again, I am the light of the world. Verse six, he, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and he came back seeing. Okay, hang on just a second. Really? How, how strange, can you, can you put yourself into this weird process Here's the blind man. And he hears Jesus and the apostles and they're drawing closer. They're having this discussion. The apostles asking about his condition. And I don't know if the blind man heard them at that point, but if it had been me and I had heard them, I would have gone up. Oh, there's the question again. Was it me or my parents? Who sinned? How can I sin? I can't even see where I am. And they draw near and he hears Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And then he hears, what? spit does it take to make a mud pack? I mean, try this. After church, not in my vision, but, but try this on your way home. Maybe pull off the side of the road, spit on the ground, see how much you need to do to make a good little mud facial. I mean, this is crazy. And the man is sitting there listening to Jesus spit on the ground. He said, I'm the light of the world. here, And then he gets... Oh yeah, make fun of the blind man, sure. I mean, what are you doing here? What a strange situation. Listen, every single healing of every blind man in the Gospels goes to this truth. 
To see Jesus is to be full of light. Jesus said in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Understand what he means when he says lamp. He's not talking about the lamp in your living room where you go, or, and it turns on. He's talking about the kind of lamp that they used, tiny little clay pots. They were little clay oil lamps. That's typical. They found dozens of them archaeologically all over Israel. You could hold one in your hand, tiny little thing. It held oil. It had a little wick on the end. That's a lamp. And when the lamp is not lit, it's just a little clay vessel, kind of like you and me. And then it would be lit. And then Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body, If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. And you can hear that and say, amen, that's poetic. What does it mean? What does it mean? Jesus says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Physically, if you're blind, you can't see, so it's just darkness. And he says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And we start to realize that Jesus is speaking spiritually. He is speaking of the eyes of the heart of spiritual seeing when he says, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be be full of light. So let's make this incredibly practical. This picture of the blind being healed and being able to see, it's not just poetry. It is perception. It, It is wisdom it's understanding, it's knowledge, it's grace and truth. To see spiritually is to understand, it's to discern. It's to see in this world in a way, listen to me, that you cannot see without the Spirit of God. You cannot see unless your blind natural self has been healed until you're a used-to-be-blind person. And then you can see And then you can understand and perceive and know truth and discern the difference between what is true and what is false, what is spiritual and what is natural. And if you say, I still have trouble with that right now. I've been a believer for years and I still have trouble perceiving things. Yeah, but you can talk to him about that. You can say, Jesus, help me understand Jesus, my sight is a little dim on this one. I need you to help me see more clearly. And you know what? He will. He does. He increases our vision. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. And how many conversations have you had with people when that's the exact response? It's foolishness. That's stupid. I don't believe that. It's not scientific. And they reject outright because in the natural you have trouble seeing. But the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, understands. Your eyes are clear and your body then is filled with light. In Jesus, we see, we perceive, we understand. Now again, the blind man, he's sitting there, he's hearing the spitting, he's hearing the mud made, he feels it rubbed on his eyes. Understand what's interesting, he did not ask for a facial that day. He did not ask for a mud pie in the eye. He didn't even ask to be healed. You realize that? He's just sitting there. But Jesus saw him in his need. Jesus knew what was on his heart 
and where this man was at. And again, verse 7, he says, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And he went away and washed, and he came back seeing. Again, such a weird process. Why does Jesus do this? The only time he heals a blind person this way. Now, all the healing of all the blind people in the Gospels, each one is different, by the way. Each one is unique in the way Jesus approaches it. It's always tailor-made to the individual, and this one is no different, but it's strange. Think about what Jesus is doing here. So two things happen in this miracle. Number one, he, he makes a mud pack. Why? Why does Jesus do that? We've, we've kind of cast it off. In fact, I did just a week and a half ago to say, well, you know, back in the first century, they believed that, that saliva had healing properties. Well, some did. The Jews didn't. So let's clarify this mud pack. Genesis chapter two, verse seven says, then the Lord God formed man of what? The dust of the earth, the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So Jesus now is incorporating the dust of the ground in this healing miracle. And you know what's interesting to me is this miracle is as creative as creation. That is, Jesus is now giving life where there was no life. He is now giving sight to eyes that had never seen in the same way God formed of the dust of the ground a man who had never existed. And so he's using dust in the miracle. It's an act of creation. It's not just a creative act like all of Jesus' miracles, but it is an act of creation, true creation. Do you realize that your eyes are second only to your brain in terms of complexity in your body? The second most complex organ of the body, each eye contains over two million working parts. That's amazing. You're all staring at me right now, and you're using all two million. <laughs> and the, your, your eyes, do you realize your eyes have the strongest muscles in your body relative to function? The eye muscles are so strong, they're literally 100 times more powerful than you need them to be. But God created them this way. The human eye can process 36,000 pieces of information an hour. It can detect over 10 million different hues of color, which is why they keep coming out with new crayons. <laughs> and your eyes will process more than 24 million images across your lifetime, accounting for 85% of your knowledge. That's a, that's a creative marvel. And when Jesus gave sight to these eyes, it was a created miracle. But, but here's mud in your eye. Think about this. <laughs> Not only the dust, but the spit. The saliva mixed with the dust to make this mud. Leviticus 15, 18, let's be clear, says if a man with a discharge spits on one who is clean, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. While pagans believed saliva was medicinal, Jews did not. Jewish people saw spit, saw saliva as unclean. This is filthy. When they spat on Jesus, it was to make him unclean. Think about that when we get to Good Friday service. 
When they spat on Jesus, it was saying, you are unclean. And that was entrenched in not only Jewish thought, but Torah law. So spitting was not okay. It was not all right. And yet Jesus spits in the ground and makes this mud pack. You know, in the same way that when Jesus touched the leper, Jesus did not become unclean, but made the leper clean. In this same way, and I'm just gonna say it straight, Jesus' saliva was not unclean. His saliva was so pure, even the dust of the ground couldn't spoil it. The pure saliva of Jesus is here now mixed with the dust of human origin, and it becomes a healing balm for this man's eyes. And then, then the second part of this miracle, it's not only the, the, the mud pack, but he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So go down to the pool. Carrie actually asked this. We were sitting there at the pool of Siloam a week ago Wednesday and talking through this. And, and she said, so, so Jesus made him go all the way down here. You don't really realize that until you're sitting there and you see the topography. But this scene, this healing of the, of the blind man, he was most likely sitting in the gates of the temple or the courtyard of the temple or near the temple on the temple mount. From there to the pool of Siloam, that's a long trek down south. The pool of Siloam sits southwest of the city of David. The city of David, okay, Jerusalem sits on a ridge several ridges actually, but the city of David was on Mount Moriah, which goes upward, upward, upward until the Temple Mount, where the temple sat at the top. Same place, by the way, where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. There on the temple, where Jesus would be crucified just north of the temple. There on the temple, so Mount Moriah, and you'd be up on the Temple Mount, you'd come out, go down the southern steps, and you would head down through the city of David to the far end, down to the pool, of Siloam on the southwest side. He's telling the blind man, who's still blind, now he's blind with mud in his eyes, and Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why? Why make him travel all the way down there? Why not nearby to the pools of Bethesda that are right there? Remember the pools of Bethesda where Jesus just recently healed the lame man? Those, those twin pools over there by the five porticos of Solomon, the pools of Bethesda, that'd be perfect. Jesus, just send him over there. Well, the problem is the pools of Bethesda would be the wrong kind of pool. If you want to heal a blind man, if you want to make him a used-to-be blind man. Now, a used-to-be lame man, that's fine. Do you realize Jesus did not use the waters of the pools of Bethesda to heal the lame man? The water had nothing to do with it. The water of the healing of the lame man was an old wives' tale. Do, do you remember that? That they believed that an angel stirred up the waters, and when the waters were stirred up, first man in got healed. So the lame man couldn't get in. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he healed him. Had nothing to do with the water. These are two very different pools. The pools of Bethesda were used for washing muddy sheep. Wash off the muddy sheep and then take them into temple for sacrifice. So it's really not a place to send someone to wash. But Siloam? Siloam is perfect. The pool of Siloam. Again, we, we sat there on a terraced hillside overlooking the pool of Siloam. They've, they've cleaned it up. 
We go there every time we go to Israel, and it's, it's getting better and better. The very first time, they had just discovered it, and it was pretty much a sewer. We sat there, and because I'm me, I did teaching out of John chapter 9 at the pool of Siloam, and it was more like the sewer of Siloam. And when we were all, it smelled, and everybody's going, and when we got done and we started back up to the bus, I remember Cheryl saying, you don't really need to teach there, Rick. <laughs> and even this time as we got to the land, she asked me when we came into Jerusalem, are you going to teach at the Pool of Siloam? And I said, you bet I am. And she said, really? <laughs> well, it's better now. The sewage is gone. It's cleaned up. It's, it's interesting because you only see a section of it and then there's a fence. The actual pool was huge. Huge. It was absolutely huge. Siloam, the Hebrew word for it is shaloach. And the pool of shaloach, it means scent. John tells us that it means scent, and that's the exact definition, probably because the pools uh, or the pool of shaloach scent had water sent to it from the Gihon Spring. And the Gihon Spring, which has been there since before Solomon. Solomon was anointed at the spring of Gihon. The Gihon Spring is still gushing water today, 3,000 plus years later. It's really cool to see that. And that stream, it flows into a tunnel that King Hezekiah carved. And he carved it from the mouth of the spring, carved it through rock all the way to the southwest side of the city of David, which would be inside the city walls where it would be protected, and they dug a huge pool there, the pools of the scent water. Shalom, Shaloach, the scent pool. That reservoir, listen, it's so important that we know that there's flowing water going all the way to that reservoir. Why? Because you have to have flowing water for a mikvah. That's what the Pool of Siloam was. A mikvah, think baptismal, but a whole lot bigger than that. By the way, we gotta do something about that because I'm so afraid I'm gonna baptize someone and knock their head right into the stones one of these days. It's gonna be, oh, well, get them under quick. <laughs> the Pool of Siloam was a mikvah. It was a huge pool, and the Jewish people, because there's flowing water flowing into the pool of Siloam, they would go into the pool, and they would do a full immersion dip and then make their way up the pilgrim's road to the temple. Jesus says, go wash in the mikvah. Go wash and be clean. Go to the pool where you go to be purified. This is all gonna make sense to this Jewish man he hears the spit. He knows about the mud, and this is being put in his eyes, and he's trying to comprehend it. He's walking all the way down. I, I don't think he's walking by himself, running into pillars or something. Someone probably let him down, or he had his little stick. But he got down there. He washes. He comes back seeing. It is such an amazing picture. Why would you send a blind man all the way down to the pool of Siloam for healing? Because, get this, cleansing is healing. Cleansing is healing. It's not the other way around. It's not get healed and then maybe you'll be clean. It's you get clean to be healed. That's the whole idea. Healed from our sin. Healed from our sickness. Healed from the disease that would kill us eternally. We've got to be made clean. And that's the one thing that the dusty sin nature rejects the most of all. Tell me I have to be clean. Tell me there's, I'm a good person. The non-believer will say, I live a good life. 
And you're telling me, it, it, it really is a catch. Maybe it was a catch for you. But it's tough for people to recognize the need that for all of my good deeds and all of my niceness and all of my charity in the world, I'm still filthy. None of that has made me clean. I'm still slapping people at the Oscars. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything about that. I just... The sin nature. And people reject the pool, reject the purity, reject the cleansing, and God even said that about Israel. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, verse six the only verse that literally refers to this pool in the Hebrew scriptures. These people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. They've rejected the waters of the sent one. Still a problem today for Jew and Gentile alike to reject the waters of the sent one. Verse eight, <laughs> you're going, how much are we doing, Rick? The whole chapter, verse eight. <laughs> Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen him a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? Notice the question, how? How were your eyes open? How is this possible? He answered, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Shiloh and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. He's just saying, this is what happened. There's no other way to tell the story. It's not like he saw it on Mulberry Street. Have you ever read that book? Once I saw it on Mulberry Street. I just read this to my grandsons yesterday, and it's so funny, because it's all about a kid who's walking home from school, and he sees a man drawing a cart, but that's not a good enough story, so he embellishes and embellishes. The whole book is about how he embellishes the story until at the end, his dad says, what did you really see? And he's like, I saw a cart. <laughs> it's a great book. Read it to your grandkids. Anyway, this man doesn't have to embellish anything. I, I mention that for a reason. Don't embellish your testimony. You don't have to do that. You don't have to make it any more than what it is. You were blind and now you see. You were dead and now you're alive. You were filthy and now you're clean. Which is again the picture that we see in this entire miracle. Verse 12, they, they said, where is he? Where is this Jesus? And the man said, I don't know. I don't know where he is. Why doesn't he know? Because he hadn't seen Jesus yet. He was blind when Jesus made the mud pack and sent him on his way. He didn't know what Jesus looked like. But you know what's interesting? He had heard Jesus' voice. He heard him. He got washed and he was healed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed, John 20, 29. This man's testimony was not based on what he had seen. It was based on what Jesus did. It was based on what he had heard. This is so amazing because you could sum up the whole miracle of John chapter nine this way. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to the list. Neither fornicators, 
That's anyone who has sex outside of marriage, outside of the marital union. Any sex outside of that is fornication. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, that is, who violate the marriage covenant, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves. And by the, word, by the way, the word there for homosexual is specific in the Greek. It's not, could mean one thing or the other. It is what it is. In the same way that adulterer and fornicator is what it is, homosexual is what it is, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, such were some of you. You could probably find yourself in the list. A used to be fornicator, a used to be idolater, used to be adulterer, used to be effeminate, used to be homosexual, used to be thief, used to be covetous, used to be drunkard, used to be reviler, used to be swindler. I used to be, but not anymore. Why? You were, listen to Paul's words, you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You went from the temple mount with mud in your eyes and filth in your body. You went down to the pool of purification. You were washed and you have been healed. And now you see. Now you see. People are gonna ask you, didn't you used to be? And you say, yeah. I used to be dust, but now I'm washed and clean. I used to be muddy, but now it's, it's just as if I'd never sinned, justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. And the man called Jesus did this. It's a marvelous story, and I wish it ended right there, but it doesn't. It keeps going, and here's where the story goes dark. The controversy, number four, the controversy. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? He said, I, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind, used to be blind. Now it was a Shabbat on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Jesus, when are you gonna learn? <laughs> he does another healing on Shabbat. Look, I love the healings, but if you wanna keep from getting in trouble, don't heal on the Sabbath. But he had to heal on the Sabbath because that's the whole point of the Sabbath. The rest that the Sabbath portrays is found in the healing touch of Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. It was Shabbat when he healed the lame man, lame man up at the pools of Bethesda. It's Shabbat now again. Shabbat over and over. Do you know how many times in the Gospels it's recorded that Jesus healed on the Sabbath? Anyone want to take a guess? Seven. I don't make this stuff up. Seven times in the four Gospels we read of Jesus healing on the Sabbath over and over again and again, and every time it ruffled religious feathers, which really, it was not the intention, and it was the intention. It was not in that the picture of Sabbath is, is found in the healing of Jesus in the perception of Jesus that sees a people in need who need to find rest in him. That's what Sabbath is all about. So of course he would heal on the Sabbath, but it also really bugged the religious stuff shirts. 
Why did he do it? Because he needed to bug the religious stuff shirts. He needed to ruffle their feathers to try and break through the darkness of their lives, to try and help them see. You know what? According to Mishnah, it's actually forbidden to heal somebody on the Sabbath. If you're a doctor, your office is closed. Somebody calls up and says, I have this issue, this problem, this disease. Come back on Sunday. I can't do anything right now. It's forbidden. You couldn't even set a broken bone on the Sabbath. Unless it was life-threatening. That was the one little caveat. If someone's about to die, then the physician was released from the no-work clause and could go to work on the person. Only if their life was in serious danger. Oddly enough, spitting was allowed on the Sabbath. You could do that if you wanted to spit. Go right ahead. Unless, unless your spit rolled around in the dirt and made a little furrow in the ground. Now that's an agricultural violation of Sabbath. I'm not kidding. You, you can read about this. It's amazing. Religion always misses power for procedure. Religion misses Compassion for convention. Compassion for, for custom. See, the religious spirit, and by the way, religious or not, the religious spirit is focused on the self and the deeds of the flesh. You realize you don't have to be religious to have a religious spirit. The religious spirit is just someone who is works-oriented, self-focused, deeds-centered, that's a religious spirit. Whether you're a churchgoer or not, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, if your life is all about your good deeds and trying to make you feel better about your mess of self by doing good things, that's a religious spirit. So in the church or out of the church, a religious spirit misses compassion because it's focused on what I can do. And when I'm so focused on my deeds, I can't see the light. Verse 15 the Pharisees also were asking him, here's the word, they were asking him again how he received his sight. How he received his sight. They want to know how. They're going to repeat it four more times in the chapter. How? How did this happen? How now? No longer blind cow. How? The religious spirit fails to ask the right question, which is who? Not how. It doesn't matter how. Jesus healed every blind man differently. The how is irrelevant. It's who did the healing. How, how did this happen? How did you receive your sight? He said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. I think it's funny. He left out the part about the spit. He applied clay to my eyes. I washed and I see. Verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, well, this man is not from God because he does not keep Shabbat. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them, which is good. Jesus is stirring them up. He's making them think. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. So it's not even the miracle. They won't even believe that he had once been blind. They're like, nah, nah, you always, you always had sight until they called the parents of that very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? We're right back to how. 
His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Mom and dad, throw him under the bus because they don't want to be in trouble with the Pharisees. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For if the Jews had already, for they had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that is Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's an actual word, put out of the synagogue. I'll tell you what it is in just a second. Verse 23, for this reason his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And again, they're not asking who. They know it's Jesus, but they can't see him for who he is. So they're hung up on the how. But you know what? The used to be blind man is starting to perceive. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's his whole witness. And it is a powerful, powerful witness. So powerful, in fact, that the used-to-be slave trader, John Newton, drew this from that testimony and put it into amazing grace. I once was blind. But now, now I see. It's not how, it's who. Verse 26, so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? How again? They're so stuck on the how. Listen, if you understand who, you'll get how. First who, then how. That's how it works. First who. Understand, know who it is. And the how will be taken care of. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he is from. Dudes, not where, who? It's still a who issue. They don't see Jesus because they refuse to address who he is and unbelief does that. Unbelief avoids seeing Jesus. Unbelief doesn't want to talk about Jesus. It wants to talk about how. How are you going to get to heaven? I'm going to work my way there. I'm going to show that I'm good enough. I'm good enough to get to heaven. That's a how answer. Who's going to open the door for you? Who's going to lead you in? Who's going to get you from here to there? There's only one who, and his name is Jesus. But remember what happened to Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth? Isaiah 61, verse 1, Jesus quotes, he's in the synagogue, and he reads from the scroll, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me, sent me, sent, shalom, as in the pool of the sent one. The sent one has come. But Jesus said he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He says this to his own people in his own hometown of Nazareth. And how did they receive him? Mark chapter six, verse three says they took offense at him. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 5 says he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Because beginning his ministry in Nazareth and now having gone up to Jerusalem with the Pharisees there, they still couldn't see who. They're missing the who. <laughs> Same issue, by the way, keeps the Jewish people from seeing Jesus 2,000 years later. We gathered in Shorashim, the little bookstore there in, in the old city, the Jewish quarter. We have some friends there, uh, Moshe and Dove. I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned them before. Moshe and Dove own this little store. They've had it for 40 years in the old city. And it's a beautiful little store, and, and they love to have conversation, especially with Christians. So we had our whole group in the store, we pulled up little plastic chairs and everybody sit down, sat down and Moshe began to talk to us and, and wanted us to ask questions. And so we're asking different questions. And I asked him, because I knew what he was gonna say, hey, Moshe, why don't you explain the, the difference? I said, give us the top three differences between what Jews understand a word to mean and what Christians do. Because Moshe's big thing is, we use the same language, but we have completely different meanings. I said, give us the top three. And he begins, but number one, number one is our definition of Messiah. And I found this interesting. It's not just that Jews don't believe Messiah has come yet. That's part of the problem. Christians, we believe Jesus is Messiah. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. We're in the church age, the times of the Gentiles. This is all about Jesus. But to the non-believing Jewish person, non-believing in Jesus, they believe Messiah's coming. But they believe something very different about Messiah from you and me. What's that? We believe Messiah is not only man, he's God. They do not. Jewish belief today is that when Messiah comes, he will be an anointed Man, he will not be divine. He will not be God. He will not be, honestly, much different from the Muslim Messiah. An anointed person, which is why Antichrist is going to have a field day with this. It's such a, a, a stunning reality that what was an issue for the Pharisees 2,000 years ago remains an issue for Jewish people today. He's, he can't be God. That's going too far. That's not okay. And so they can't see him because they will not see him as he is. To everyone who sees him as he is, eternal life. Your eyes are open. You were blind, but now you see. Look at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. <laughs> that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. He continues, we know God does not hear sinners. Actually, the blind, this is just his opinion at this point. God does hear sinners, or we wouldn't be saved. But we know he does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. He's talking about Jesus. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind, and then he says, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And I go, now he's got it. He's not just physically healed in his sight. Now he's seeing spiritually. Now he's perceiving clearly. 
Because he says, if he were not from God, he could do nothing. Remember what Jesus said on the night of his betrayal? John 15, verse five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the man says, he's gotta be divine. If he wasn't divine, he couldn't do this. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they put him out. See what just happened? This is what you call an ad hominem attack. What it basically means is you run out of logical response, so you just throw some disparaging comment at the person. You know, you're in an argument, you're back and forth, and you're guys arguing science, and you're bringing the truth of Jesus and science and truth of Jesus and science and truth of Jesus, and finally they run out of science, and they just go, well, well you're stupid. <laughs> That's ad hominem. Well, I just don't believe it. Well, I just think you Christians are, and off they go. Ad hominem attack. That's exactly what they do. They just say, you're a sinner, and you're trying to teach us, and they put him out. They kicked him out. They unsynagogued him. That's the word. It's aposynagogos. They disfellowshipped him, unsynagogued him. They excommunicated him, if you will. See, logic left the building, so they had to kick him out of the building. They had no response to him, unsynagoguing. Listen, the religious spirit breaks fellowship over disagreement. And I'm telling you this, and I've had to grapple with this in my own nature. The religious spirit divides over disparate views rather than seeking to reconcile. See, Jesus reconciles. There's too much of this religious spirit in the church which causes fellowship to rip and tear because of disagreements while Jesus is saying, I want reconciliation. I want you to come together. I want you to talk it out. I want you to learn to love each other. Yeah, but it's hard. He's so unlovable. Then love him more. She's so unlovely. Then love her more. Do you realize that part of the reason Jesus gave us the church is the same reason he gave us marriage, by the way? It's not always easy. Mine is, so, you know, totally. <laughs> Cheryl and I always see eye to eye on everything. It's the perfect marriage. It's a good marriage, but we work at it. And God gives us marriage because it, it literally forces us to have to deal with the other person in the same way he deals with us. That's why he gave us the church. It's not just about your encouragement and mine. It's not just about the teaching we can get or the worship we can share, you know. It's not just about the budgets we can spend and the missions we can do. It's about relationships. And disfellowship happens when we refuse to work through disagreement together. I hate the word disfellowship. I hate the word excommunication, and I hate when Christians break over different opinions the hard work of koinonia, the roll-up-our-sleeves work of fellowship is, just, is to say, I don't agree with you, Pastor. I really have trouble with what you said on Sunday. Let's talk about it. Let's walk up. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I know it's a shocker, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I said something offensive, and I didn't mean to, but it hurt you. 
And it's not just about me. With a brother or a sister, someone says something, does something, you're like, I, that's, I've had it. I don't need that. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because you see, Jesus said a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. We nailed him to the cross and he loved us anyway. That's seeing with eyes like Jesus. He says, love one another. Proverbs 18, 19, it's true. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like bars of a citadel, but Jesus came to break the bars and set the prisoners free. And part of that freedom is learning to walk together even when it's not easy, even when we're not seeing eye to eye. Paul said, Ephesians 4, 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, let's finish this up. The man is kicked out. He's unsynagogued. The Pharisees are through with him. Watch what Jesus does. Number five, I call this the comprehension. The comprehension. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. Stop right there. This is the beautiful thing Jesus does. You may have been put out of a church, but Jesus found you. We, in our relationships, will break fellowship. Jesus will find you. He always finds us to, to restore and maybe the wounds and the pain is too hard in that particular church fellowship or that relationship. But Jesus, he finds us anyway, even when we have been put out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I want to ask you all, do you feel rejected? Have you been cast out? Have you been unsynagogued or disfellowshipped or even just put out of a relationship? Jesus will find you. And the first thing he says to you and to me is, do you believe in the Son of Man? He turns it right back to himself. You're hurt, you're looking at the other person. Stop for a minute. Do you believe in me? Look at me, Jesus says. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And now we're back to the right question, who? And Jesus said, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And this is so powerful. Powerful on two levels because one, he hadn't seen Jesus yet. You hear what Jesus said? You have both seen him and he's the one talking to you. In other words, Jesus said to him, you saw me before. No, he didn't. He was blind before. How could he see him before? You have seen me. How did he see him? Well, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And he heard him. He perceived him before he saw him by faith. If he hadn't seen him by faith, he never would have made the trek to Siloam. If he didn't believe the words of Jesus that something was gonna happen, he wouldn't have responded. You've seen me, Jesus says. And he is the one who is talking with you. And it says, he cries out, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And this is that word worship, proskuneo, proskuneo, which means, remember this, a dog licking its master's hand? Worship. It means to bend the knee, to touch the ground with your forehead, to literally flat out be prostrate on the ground. 
before the one you worship. And you know what's awesome about this outward demonstration of his inward devotion? Jesus doesn't stop him. I've told you before, it is blasphemy to receive worship if you are not God. So of all the other proofs throughout the Gospel of John, and there are many, that Jesus is God, this is huge that he receives the worship of this man and doesn't say a single thing. It's not like Revelation 19 where John bows down before the angel and the angel says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant of yours. Worship God. For the testimony of prophecy is, or the witness of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Worship him. So this blind man, used to be blind, sees Jesus, realizes it's Jesus, understands the one before him is the one who had healed him, and he falls down and he worships. Psalm 211 says, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son, or kiss the Son. It's an amazing progression in this man's story. He called him the man who's called Jesus, back in verse 11. Then in verse 17, he says he's a prophet. Then in verse 33, he says he's a man from God. And now he is on his clean face worshiping Jesus. Nothing we do more honestly and openly declares the deity and the lordship of Jesus than our worship, which is why our worship is so important. It is not about your singing voice. It is about making declaration of the deity of Christ. That's why we worship. So if you got a horrible voice, man, make a joyful noise. Seriously, drive the people out from around you (laughs) because you are declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what our worship is all about. His faith, his faith to go down to Siloam, it came from hearing the word of Christ. And by the way, I'm almost done here, but All of the doctrinal and and theological and philosophical and personal and soulish questions will fall silent when we see him. Do you have that list of questions? I often hear people say this. I, I used to say this all the time. Boy, when I see Jesus, I'm gonna ask him a few things as if he needs to answer me. But I'm telling you, when we see him, you're not going to have any more questions. You're not going to need to ask him a thing. You're going to see him, and like the man who used to be blind but now can see, all of us having used to be blind or used to have been blind, we now see when we see Jesus, we're going to do one thing, fall on our faces and worship him. And when he appears, 1 John 3, verse 2, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. Why don't some people see that? It's still, that to me is the biggest question of our faith walk. Why don't people see Jesus? Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. What does that mean? It means that in his first coming, his first coming causes one of two things, perception or blindness. There's an old African saying, Charles Spurgeon quoted it, saying, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And Spurgeon says, the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance 
hardens others in their sins. Jesus, by simply coming to the world, God in the flesh, for some, it's glorious sight. For others, it's blindness because the light is too bright. And it all has to do with the heart. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Better to stumble in blind humility for a lifetime and finally see Jesus than to march along with arrogant vision only to find you are blind all along. With all due respect, this is yet what we see in Israel. And when I say Israel, I'm not talking about all Jewish people because, again, many, many Jewish people are coming to faith in their Messiah, recognizing their chosenness in Jesus. But Israel proper right now still remains without faith because Israel proper right now remains blind. Isaiah chapter six, verse nine says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Fleeing vulnerable Israel, fished and hunted, is coming back to the land. But my friends, the land is no refuge. It is no solace. It is no sanctuary. And it won't be until the prophecy of Zechariah is fulfilled. Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will see him. They will mourn for him as one mourns, the Bible says, for an only son. So this morning, how about you? What's it going to take for you to see Jesus? Stop asking when, stop asking where, stop asking why, stop asking how. How are you going to get me out of this one, Lord? And start focusing on who. You look at Jesus and you see him for who he is. And Isaiah 29, 18 tells us, out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would see with eyes of faith, that we would come out of any darkness, any shadow, any gloom, Lord, that rests on our lives today. Father, for the person who, who has yet to believe, for the person who continues to hold you at arm's length and refuses to see you, Lord Jesus, the person who doesn't want to admit that there's any grime or filth or dirt in their lives, I ask for a breakthrough of sight. I ask for a miracle of healing. I pray first, Lord, that you give them ears to hear your voice and faith to come and heal the blindness. And Father, for those of your children all of us gathered here this morning who are believers in you, Lord Jesus, if there are perception problems, if there's dimness or grayness or darkness, oh Lord, give us faith to come out of the darkness, to be used to be blind, but now we see. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.